bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need the legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, April 12, 2011. This week, I'll start with an update on the federal budget for the remainder of fiscal year 2011, as well as a discussion about the House Republicans' proposed budget for fiscal year 2012. I'll also discuss the latest legislative developments on the tax reform front. Then, I'll move to historic tax credit news, where I have a quick preview of Novogratz and Company's upcoming webinar about the Virginia Historic Tax Credit Fund case. While the Virginia case specifically concerns historic tax credits, the implications of the judge's reasoning in the case affects all state tax credits. I'll also talk about the state-level updates on threats to the historic tax credit programs in Michigan and Montana. Turning to renewable energy tax credit news, I'll touch on two recent reports about the status of the renewable energy development markets, both domestically and internationally. In new market tax credit news, I'll share some highlights of recent remarks made by President Obama's administration about the new market tax credit in the context of helping the United States recover from the recession. And finally, in low-income housing tax credit matters, I'll share a quick announcement about new research that's expected soon from Harvard's Joint Center for Housing Studies. So if you're ready, let's get started. In general news, we start with fiscal year 2011 funding. As of the time of this recording, the President and the Congress had avoided a government shutdown. However, while the framework of a deal was agreed to and another short-term continuing resolution passed, the details of the agreement were still being finalized Monday night and were slowly being revealed. What we do know is the following. Total cuts, as measured against the fiscal year 2010 budget, were about $38 billion. Total cuts, as measured against President Obama's fiscal year 2011 budget request, were about $78.5 billion. And the New York Times was reporting that the housing assistance program would be facing cuts. As additional details of the cuts contained in the $38 billion in cuts are revealed, we'll send tweets and other breaking news and also update you next week in our Tax Credit Tuesday podcast. A vote is expected to occur on April 13th 2011 on the fiscal year 2011 budget. Raising the debt ceiling is the next big battle. The $14.3 trillion debt ceiling is expected to be reached, according to Treasury Secretary Geithner, no later than May 16th. There is much hyperbole surrounding raising the debt ceiling. Here are what administration and elected officials are saying. Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner has said that failing to raise the debt ceiling would, quote, call into question the willingness of the government of the United States to meet its obligations and shake the basic foundations of the entire global financial system. House Speaker John Boehner said, quote, I can tell you this. There will not be an increase in the debt limit 
without something really, really big attached to it. Brendan Buck, a spokesman for Speaker Boehner, said, It's fantasy to think that a bill to raise the debt limit could pass the House without significant spending cuts or reforms. We hope they realize that. Austin Goolsby, chairman of the White House Council of Economic Advisors, said that Republicans shouldn't be, quote, playing chicken with the debt ceiling and playing games, potentially with the full faith and credit of the United States. White House spokesman Jake Carney said, quote, to hold hostage a vote in return for an exchange for some proposal that one party wants is not the way to treat this issue. It's too dangerous to do it that way. Now, many are also harking back to March 2006, when then-Senator Barack Obama opposed raising the debt ceiling. He said then, and I quote, The fact that we are here today to debate raising America's debt limit is a sign of leadership failure. It is a sign that the U.S. government can't pay its own bills. It is a sign that we now depend on ongoing financial assistance from foreign countries to finance our government's reckless fiscal policies. Leadership means that the buck stops here. Instead, Washington is shifting the burden of bad choices today onto the backs of our children and grandchildren. America has a debt and a failure of leadership. Americans deserve better. I therefore intend to oppose the effort to increase America's debt limit, which then-Senator Barack Obama did. Now, more recently, White House spokesman Carney said that President Obama regrets that vote and thinks it was a mistake. Quoting White House spokesman Carney, He realizes now that raising the debt ceiling is so important to the health of this economy and the global economy that it's not a vote that, even when you are protesting an administration's policies, you can play around with. The GOP budget proposal for fiscal year 2012 is also garnering considerable attention. On April 6th, the House Budget Committee voted to advance a fiscal year 2012 budget resolution by a vote of 22 to 16. The budget resolution makes policy recommendations and sets spending levels for the House Appropriations Committee. House Budget Committee Chairman Paul Ryan says a proposal would make $6.2 trillion in cuts over the next 10 years. That compared to President Obama's proposed fiscal year 2012 budget. If enacted, the resolution would instruct Congress to cut the size of the federal workforce and institute pay freezes and benefit cuts. It would ban in earmarks. It would substantially change federal payments under the Medicare and Medicaid programs and create institutional barriers to increased spending, such as a binding cap on total spending as a percentage of the economy and requiring mandatory spending to undergo regular congressional review. Of particular interest to the tax credit community, the budget resolution also includes a number of provisions that have the potential to directly affect the fields of affordable housing, community development, historic preservation, and renewable energy. Specifically, if enacted, the resolution would also instruct Congress to cut domestic non-security spending to fiscal year 2008 levels and institute a five-year spending freeze. It would impose federal time limits and work requirements on households receiving housing assistance. It takes steps to eliminate the conservatorship of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and it reduces the top corporate and personal tax rates to 25% while broadening the tax base by removing unspecified credits and deductions.
This final provision, regarding the elimination of unnamed tax deductions and credits, is described in a document called Path to Prosperity, Restoring America's Promise. That document states that, quote, tax expenditures have a huge impact on the federal budget, resulting in more than $1 trillion in foregone revenue each year. However, in the same sentence, the proposal acknowledges that the exact definition of what constitutes a tax expenditure is subject to debate. The Ryan proposal argues that eliminating large tax expenditures, when offset by lower rates, would have a doubly positive impact on the economy. It would stop diverting economic resources to less productive uses and make possible the lower tax rates that provide greater incentives for economic growth. Congressman Ryan's fiscal year 2012 budget resolution could pass in the House this week. It's expected that the Senate will follow with a markedly different version in the weeks ahead. Speaking of proposed changes to the tax code, the Wyden-Coates tax reform bill was released last week. The bill includes many of the tenets regarding tax reform expressed in Congressman Ryan's budget resolution. The bill was released on April 5th by Senators Ron Wyden and Dan Coates. Senators Wyden and Coates say Senate Bill 727, entitled the Bipartisan Tax Fairness and Simplification Act, would simplify the tax system, hold down rates for individuals and families, provide tax relief to the middle class, and create incentives for businesses to grow and invest. A statement about the bill's introduction says it would streamline the tangled web of nearly 10,000 exemptions, deductions, credits, and other preferences currently cluttering the U.S. tax code. For individuals, Senate Bill 727 reduces the number of individual tax brackets from 6 to 3. The three tax brackets would be 35%, 25%, and 15%. It would also eliminate the alternative minimum tax completely. For businesses, Senate Bill 727 would allow more than 95% of small businesses, those businesses with annual gross receipts of up to $1 million, to permanently expense all equipment and inventory costs in a single year. Supporters say this would encourage small business growth. The bill would also reduce the top corporate tax rate and replace the existing rates with a single flat rate of 24% down from a top rate of 35%. This rate reduction would be achieved by eliminating certain tax expenditures. At this time, it appears that the local housing tax credit, new markets tax credit, historic tax credit, and renewable energy tax credits would be preserved, yes, preserved, in the current version of the bill. A copy of Senate Bill 727 and related information can be found online at www.novaco.com backslash hot topics. Now, in other tax reform news, as you may recall, the Joint Committee on Taxation held a hearing on April 6th to discuss tax reform options. The hearing featured two witnesses, James Baker, who served as Chief of Staff during President Reagan's first term and went on to shepherd the 1986 Tax Reform Act through the administration, or through Congress, as Treasury Secretary. And also as a witness, former Democratic leader Dick Gephardt, who, along with Senator Bradley, helped kickstart the tax reform debate with their 1982 tax reform package. The hearing consisted of opening remarks from Senators Max Baucus and Orrin Hatch and Congressman Dave Camp and Sander Levin. 
It was followed by a roundtable discussion. Links to some of the opening statements from the hearing can be found online at www.novico.com backslash hot topics. There's also a link to a replay of the hearing at that link. In other breaking news, as of this recording, it appears that the president will be speaking to the nation on Wednesday, April 13th, regarding the deficit and the United States fiscal crisis. The president is expected to set specific deficit reduction targets and a timeline for reaching them. The president is also expected to restate his opposition to tax cuts for those making more than $250,000 a year. The speech is expected to contain broad guidelines, but be light on policy specifics. We'll have more in next week's Tax Credit Tuesday podcast, and we'll send out tweets and breaking news alerts to the extent his speech warrants. In historic tax credit news, as you know, on March 29th, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit published an opinion in the Virginia Historic Tax Credit Fund case, an opinion that reverses a December 2009 U.S. Tax Court opinion that was favorable to state tax credit investors. Because of the profound implications that the case may have on the industry and its effect on future and pending tax credit transactions, it's important to understand what's at stake for real estate developers and tax credit investors. No Regretting Company will present a webinar tomorrow, Wednesday, April 13th, featuring a panel of experts who will discuss how the decision made in the courtroom will affect decisions made in the boardroom. We'll examine the court's reasoning in concluding that the tax credit fund had sold state tax credits to its investors. We'll also discuss what changes the tax credit community can expect to see stemming from this decision. For two hours of in-depth analysis and guidance, I invite you to join us online from 10 to 12 p.m. Pacific Time, tomorrow, April 13th. And for those who can't join the live webinar, we'll also provide the opportunity to download a replay of the webinar after it has concluded. Turning to Michigan Historic Tax Credits, as you may have read in April's Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits, Michigan Governor Rick Snyder proposed cutting all state tax credits from Michigan's 2012 and 2013 budget. This includes the State Historic Preservation Tax Credit. Throughout March, the Michigan House of Representatives Tax Policy Committee has held hearings on the budget bills known as HB 4361 and HB 4362. In response to the continuing debate, Michigan State Historic Preservation Office, or SHPO, on March 28th issued an update for the HTC, or Historic Tax Credit Program. The update temporarily adjusts the administration of the program's application, review, and approval process. This change will not affect federal historic tax credits or the federal portion of basic combined credit applications, which provide both state and federal tax credits to projects. The the provisions, which are as follows, will remain in effect until further notice. The provisions are broken out between existing and new projects. For existing projects, existing state tax credit applicants with a Part 2 application that was received on or before December 31, 2010 
are allowed to proceed through the review, construction, and approval processes in accordance with the rules in effect on December 31, 2010. SHPO will process and award credits to all state-only and basic combined tax credit applicants with a Part 2 application completed on or after January 1, 2011, but before 5 p.m. March 18, 2011, in accordance with the rules in effect on December 31, 2010. All projects that have only a Part 1 completed as of March 18 will be treated as new projects. For new projects, SHPO will continue to accept and review state-only and basic combined applications received after March 18th, but they'll not make credit reservations. All 2011 special consideration applications and amendments received on or before March 4th will be reviewed on a technical basis, but no tax credit reservations will be made. The same applies to enhanced credit applications and amendments received on or after January 1. Now, this is obviously uh, very complicated, and there's a lot of deadlines here. And if you have an application in process, these deadlines will sound fairly familiar to you. For additional details about the program changes, just go online to the Michigan State Historic Preservation Office's website. You can also contact Tyler Gibbs in our Michigan office or Tom Bosha in our Cleveland, Ohio office for more details. Turning to Montana, we have a positive note. Legislators in Montana have exempted the state's historic tax credit from a bill that, if passed, would eliminate numerous state tax credit programs. State Senator Bob Lake introduced Senate Bill 253 in January. As introduced, the bill would have eliminated 16 individual and corporate tax credit programs, including the state historic tax credit and several energy-related programs. On March 26th, Montana's Senate passed a version of the bill that eliminated the historic tax credit program and sent the bill on to the State House Representatives Taxation Committee. The committee held hearings in early April and amended the bill, exempting the historic tax credit and several other programs from the cuts. As of April 7th, the new version of Senate Bill 253 had been referred to the House's Appropriations Committee. Now to read more about the risks the state tax credits posed by state budget pressure I invite you to read the April edition of my Washington Wire column. The Washington Wire is a monthly column in the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits that's also featured online each month at www.novaco.com backslash journal. This month, I discuss how, as states' options for addressing budget shortfalls are dwindling, lawmakers are scouring their budgets for sources of savings or potential increased revenue. In many cases, this pressure has prompted states to propose trimming or eliminating state tax credits for affordable housing, community development, historic preservation, and renewable energy. You can read more at www.novoco.com backslash journal. In renewable energy tax credit news, on April 7th, the American Wind Energy Association, AWEA, reported that America's wind power industry grew by 15% in 2010 and provided 26% of all new electric generating capacity in the United States. The report noted that with the more than 5,000 megawatts added last year, U.S. wind installations now stand at more than 40,000 megawatts. Statistics from OWEA reveal that the Section 1603 cash grant in lieu of tax credit program contributed significantly 
to new project starts in 2010. On top of new construction starts, 2010 saw new manufacturing as well. AWARE reports that the wind industry brought 14 new manufacturing facilities online, consistent with 2009. Looking ahead to this year, 2011, the group says that the U.S. wind market entered 2011 with 5,600 megawatts under construction. This is more than twice the amount of megawatts under construction at the start of 2010. The Wind Industry Annual Market Report is available to association members at awea.org. Non-members can purchase the report at the same address. Turning to the results of a Pew Charitable Trust study, that was released in March, the U.S. has slipped to third place globally in terms of the amount of private investment directed to the clean energy sector. Until 2008, the U.S. had held the top spot, which is now held by China. Globally, clean energy finance and investments grew by 30% to a record $243 billion in 2010. The United States received $34 billion in equity last year, which was a 51% increase from 2009. However, the gap continues to widen between the U.S. and China. China attracted a record $54.4 billion in investment last year. Germany also attracted more money than the U.S. last year with $41.2 billion, claiming the number two spot, up from third the previous year. In other news, 34 renewable energy company CEOs are urging the Department of Energy, DOE, to keep its loan guarantee program, despite threats of budget cuts from Congress. In a letter dated March 29th, the CEOs warned that the United States could fall behind in clean energy investment and deployment if the DOE loan guarantee program is defunded. In the letter, the program supporters assert that it has already begun to deliver results. They note that the program has committed more than $26 billion in loans and loan guarantees, and these amounts are two projects that represent $42 billion in investment in the economy. These investments represent an estimated 58,000 direct and indirect jobs across 19 states. The letter proposes a structural solution for the program, the ability to transfer viable Section 1705 project applications into the Section 1703 program. Turning to our upcoming Renewable Energy Finance Conference that's happening in San Francisco, We will be discussing the future of the Department of Energy Loan Guarantee Program there, as well as the future of other renewable energy incentives. I encourage you to join Never Gotten Company at this conference in San Francisco. This Financing Renewable Energy Conference will be held April 28th and 29th. I would also like to note that Derek Dorn, adjunct professor at Georgetown Law, he's also senior counsel to Senator Jeff Bingaman and staff director of the Senate Finance Subcommittee on Energy National natural resources and infrastructure. He's scheduled to address the conference attendees on Thursday, April 28th. We also have several networking opportunities planned for the event. To view the agenda and see who else is speaking, just go online to www.novaco.com backslash events. You can also go there to register online. In New Market Tax Credit news, on March 30th, Gene Sperling the director of President Obama's National Economic Council, gave a speech to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce at its fifth annual Capital Markets Summit. He gave an overview of the Obama economic team's perspective in terms of the economy and overall competitiveness agenda. 
Director Sperling urged infrastructure development and job growth efforts while making strategic budget deficit cuts. He also spoke about the administration's commitment to corporate tax reform. Director Sperling echoed earlier administration themes of expanding the tax base by eliminating certain expenditures, tax expenditures that is, and loopholes in order to lower corporate tax rates. He noted that the administration's goal is to make these reforms in a way that is fiscally responsible and budget neutral. He stressed that this would require a commitment to reduce the complexity in the tax code and a commitment to reducing tax expenditures and tax loopholes to create the savings that would allow for a lower corporate tax rate. In concluding his remarks, Director Sperling urged the private sector to consider economic strategies to bring recovery to areas that are still struggling with high unemployment rates and other effects of the recession. Director Sperling mentioned a few specific policies, such as the new market tax credits, that he said are part of that larger goal. He said that the administration is very open to other ideas about how to strengthen small business finance and small business growth. During his comments, Director Sperling noted that the commitment of the National Economic Council, as well as the commitment of Treasury Secretary Geithner and his team, to working with the business community towards the goals he had discussed. On a related note, last week Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner testified before the Senate Appropriations Committee's Subcommittee on Financial Services and General Government. In his remarks on April 5th, Secretary Geithner said Treasury is working to encourage private sector investment in startups, as well as small businesses operating in moderate and low-income communities. Specifically, Secretary Geithner noted that these efforts are being made through investments in the Community Development Financial Institutions Fund and the New Market Tax Credit Program. Now, while neither set of comments address specifics about the New Market Tax Credit, it is encouraging, it's very encouraging, that the administration recognizes and embraces the New Market Tax Credit as a tool to help the nation recover from the recession. In low-income housing tax credit news, Last week, Harvard's Joint Center for Housing Studies announced that in two weeks, it will release a new report about the nation's rental housing. This report is entitled, America's Rental Housing, Meeting Challenges, Building Opportunities. It was developed with support from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. It is slated for official release at an event to be held the morning of Tuesday, April 26th at the Museum in Washington, D.C., U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development Secretary Sean Donovan will keynote the event. Other speakers include Eric Belsky, Managing Director of the Joint Center for Housing Studies, Chris Herbert, Director of Research at the Joint Center for Housing Studies, Julia Stash, Vice President, U.S. Programs at the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, Nancy Andrews, President and CEO of the Low Income Investment Fund, Richard Barron, co-founder and chairman of McCormick Barron Salazar, as well as Mark Calabria, Director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato Institute. Stay tuned to future podcasts for more information about the Joint Center's report. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Please join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next Tuesday. Thanks for listening.